Welcome to The Science of Beauty, a new podcast from Allure. I'm Michelle Lee, the Editor-in-Chief of Allure. And I'm Jenny Bailly, Executive Beauty Director. On this podcast, we're going to be going deep on the science behind beauty and the products that we are always talking about and always, always testing here at Allure. And today on our very first episode, we wanted to start with the product that experts say is the number one most important thing to use in your skin. If you're not using it, there is no point in the rest of your skincare routine. Exactly. The toners, the essences, the serums, they're all just a big old waste of time without, drum roll please, sunscreen. So to get us started, I want to take us back in time to 1991. Jenny, where were you in 1991? I was in the fall of 1991. I was just beginning my sophomore year of high school in Bethesda, Maryland. I had probably spent much of that summer on the beach telling my mom that, yes, of course I was wearing the SPF 15 that she had given to me when, in fact, I had poured SPF 4 into the bottle because a tan looked so good. And my skincare routine at the time, I would say, probably consisted of Noxzema on my face for cleansing. Same. Thanks. So healthy-looking skin, your face belongs to Noxzema. And then probably a little sea breeze on top just to really dry things out. Oh, my God. You're really bringing me back with the sea breeze and Noxzema. I can smell both of those right now. I was also in high school, and I was actually, I think, in my last year um, in Connecticut in high school, and then I was getting ready to move to another high school in Florida. So talk about baking in the sun, was also wearing minimal sunscreen and also using mostly Noxzema, which also felt like so fancy to me at the time. But for sure, when I moved down to South Florida, Florida, I was just like tanning up a storm. When I look at my photos back then, I am tan, tan, tan. While we were doing all that, there was something else really big going on right above our heads. That sounds ominous. I want to read you something from an article that was in Newsweek in 1991. Okay, yeah, sure. So it starts with a guy named Walter Ulloa, a ranch hand in South America, and it lists all these strange things that are happening around him. Blind salmon were found in Tierra del Fuego, way down at the southern tip of the continent. Apparently, there were thousands of sheep found with cataracts, that cloudiness that can develop in your eyes that makes it really hard to see. And then it says that these strange things also started happening to Walter, the ranch hand. Here's what the article says. After long days on an upper pasture, the 28-year-old ranch hand found that his arms burned like boiling water, he said. His eyes, swollen and irritated, clouded over. His left one is now completely blind. Another ranch hand was also affected. Focusing on objects now makes him weep uncontrollably. It's like a horrible scene from a sci-fi movie. Very scary. So it was a mystery what was happening to Walter and the salmon and the sheep, but we know what was going on. Yes, we do. And that's what we're going to start our episode with today. Before we talk all about the science of sunscreen and how to protect yourself with it, We're going to tell you the story of what you might call the Earth's natural sunscreen and how humans tore a hole right through it. There's a direct correlation between how much we emit and how much ozone there is in the stratosphere. When it comes to climate change, it's it's not a linear response. That's Shaila Raghav. She knows a thing or two about the ozone layer. I'm the vice president of climate change at a nonprofit named Conservation International. Shaila's work focuses on drawing attention to the fact that we can't solve climate change without nature. When did you first hear about the ozone layer thinning? 
So I first heard about the ozone layer when I was a kid, and it almost seemed like it was this ominous and scary thought that there was a hole growing in our atmosphere that was exposing all of humanity and all of the, the entire surface of the planet uh, to um, harmful so solar radiation. And we're really worried about how the expansion of the hole into areas like Australia could affect uh, increases in skin cancer or even affecting livestock like sheep that were experiencing cataracts or blindness. Jenny. Hi, Michelle. I want to pull out here for a moment. And before we get back to the story of the ozone layer, I actually want to talk about what was happening with sun protection at this time. Today, you're always hearing people say, put on sunscreen, don't leave the house without it. But it wasn't always like that. It most certainly wasn't. So now let's get into it. Okay, so actually, if we start in the late 19th century, having really pale skin in many parts of the world had been a status symbol, a symbol of wealth, and of course, being white or proximity to whiteness. But sunscreen didn't exist yet. So if people didn't want their skin to get darker, they basically had to have the luxury of staying inside all the time or I guess investing in a lot of parasols. Right, which obviously was not an option available to everyone. And then in the early 20th century, there was a shift. Doctors actually started prescribing sunbathing as a treatment for certain diseases like tuberculosis and rickets. There was this idea that spending time in the sun and being tan was associated with health. And that's still true today. You go on a vacation, you get, quote, a little color, and everyone says, oh, you look so great. But even when I get a little color on vacation, I'm still trying to protect myself from the sun. Back then, people weren't thinking at all about protection from UV rays. Nope, absolutely not. It wasn't until the 30s and 40s, actually, when the first two sunscreens were created. One was developed by a guy named Franz Greeter. He was a Swiss chemistry student who got sunburnt on a mountain in the Swiss border and then decided to do something about it. And then there was another developed by Benjamin Green, who was from Miami Beach. He was a military airman and pharmacist who made it because in his flying days, he and his fellow military men needed sun protection. By today's standards, I don't think either of these sunscreens would be considered particularly pleasant to use. Yeah, they were kind of greasy. The Airman Benjamin Green sunscreen especially. So imagine smearing petroleum jelly on your face. Oh, I can imagine that, and it is not very appealing. It is certainly a far cry from the wardrobe of light and silky sunscreens that I have in my bathroom right now. They also weren't nearly as effective as sunscreens today. And while this was happening, beauty companies also started making suntan oils which is kind of where the industry heads for a while, basically giving you just enough sun protection to tan without burning. So by today's standards, suntan oil is basically just basting yourself and then going out in the sun. And then, of course, we can't forget... The copper tone girl. The copper tone girl. I can see that naughty cocker spaniel in those white cheeks right now. <laughs> I can see it too. Anyway, so that famous Copper Tone Girl ad is released. Everyone loves it. It offered sun protection, but definitely wasn't focused on blocking out the sun completely. The tagline, after all, was tan, don't burn. And then it wasn't until around the 1970s that people started to get serious about actually protecting their skin, not just protecting it enough to allow it to tan, but truly protecting it. Yes, exactly. The FDA literally published a statement saying, quote, in the long run, sun tanning is not good for the skin. Surprise, surprise. 
Of course, people still kept tanning and keep tanning even today, but the 70s was when the science started to turn towards the risks of sun exposure. This is also around the same time that the modern environmental movement was born in the United States. In fact, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was established in 1970. Yep, and that's also right around the time that people started looking closely at the ozone layer. Our old friend, the ozone layer. Right, so let's get back to our conversation with Shyla. What exactly is the ozone layer? The ozone layer is actually the common term for the concentration of ozone that's found 15 to 30 kilometers above Earth's surface. And it covers the entire planet and it, it protects life on Earth by absorbing harmful ultraviolet B radiation from the sun. And we've also discovered that um, it, it really acts like natural sunscreen. Could you just scare us a little bit for a minute? What would happen to the Earth and because this is a lore, what would happen to our skin, um, specifically if there were no ozone layer at all? Ozone provides a critical protection from the sun's rays. And so if there were no ozone in the atmosphere, many NASA scientists have evaluated that it would effectively sterilize Earth's surface because UVB radiation is incredibly strong and incredibly damaging. It can cause mutations in DNA and genetic structure. Um, it can cause animals and even people to go blind. Um, and, and so ultimately, if we didn't have this ozone layer, you know, covering the surface of the planet, then life as we know it would not exist. So there is this really scary scientific discovery but unlike what we're seeing happen, or frankly, not happen in the world today to address climate change, during this ozone crisis, there was a global agreement to reverse the damage. Is that right? In the 1970s, the chemical reaction was discovered that documented and proved the relationship between the presence of chlorofluorocarbons in the stratosphere. Okay, so I just want to jump in here for a moment to explain what these nasty chlorofluorocarbons are. Yes, let's. So as children of the 80s, Michelle and I know what they are. But for those who don't, a quick explanation, they are chemical compounds, usually gases. Right. And they were found in refrigerants, so what your childhood air conditioner might have used, and in aerosols like shaving cream. Exactly. And as Shiloh was saying, they can get up in the ozone layer and destroy it. We heard a lot about them in grade school in the 80s, and they cause all of these problems that we've been talking about. Exactly. Which is why they were banned by the Montreal Protocol. Okay. So back to Shiloh. And in fact, um, just you know, one molecule uh, or one chlorofluorocarbon could destroy up to a thousand ozone molecules. But at that time, there was really no evidence that there was actually a measurable hole in the ozone layer. So in the 1980s, um, three British scientists actually took a series of measurements. And in fact, what they found was that the ozone layer in 1984 over Antarctica was about two thirds as thick as it had been in earlier decades. The Montreal Protocol was born and came into effect in 1987. And ultimately, what the Montreal Protocol does is it commits countries to phasing out the production and the import of major ozone 
ozone-depleting substances, then it's shown the ability of the world to come together around addressing what is really a global problem. And, and over the next few decades, and hopefully within our lifetimes, we'll have a point where there will no longer be an ozone hole. So I, like both of you, also grew up in the 80s, and I do remember feeling afraid. But do you recall what the public response was at that time? Was it just overall fear? Yeah, I think it was overall fear, but I think we also saw there was a lot of backlash and there was a lot of skepticism and, you know, you would say even intimidation of the scientists, which I think is something that we're quite used to right now with climate uh, science as well. Believe science, people. So anyway, just to be clear, the hole is healing, but the ozone layer itself is continuing to thin. Is that correct? Yes, that's right, because the production of chlorofluorocarbons has not been zeroed out completely. Can you talk a little bit about rising skin cancer rates? Um, it's obviously something that we talk about at Allure quite a bit. To what extent is that the result of changes in the ozone layer? Yeah, so I think that part of it is a result of the changes in the ozone layer. But as we all know, that rise in skin cancer is also a result of behavior. If people are spending more time outside and are more exposed to solar radiation, then they're, of course, the incidence of skin cancer are going to be higher. And what, Shaila, do you think is the probability that this hole in the ozone layer will actually close between 2050 and 2070? So along with the recovery and the closing of the hole, it also coincide with an overall thickening and recovery of the ozone layer around the globe. But it sounds like it's safe to say we still don't have the sun protection, say, that our parents had in the in the 50s or 60s. We're not quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's probably accurate. So uh, it, it really is an imperative for us to, to take more precautions and to make sure that we're protecting ourselves both through kind of physical means, clothing, shade, but also um, sun protection that we apply in our skin. I totally agree with Shyla. And we're going to dig into that more in just a minute with a dermatologist who's going to tell us about how we're wearing sunscreen wrong. And also how to wear it right. So let's recap. Love a recap. We just heard from Shyla all about the Earth's natural sunscreen, the ozone layer, and how we tore a hole in it with certain products like aerosols and refrigerants. And the ozone layer is repairing itself, which is great, but it's still going to take a while. And we're still more susceptible to UV rays than, for example, our parents were, because you've got less protection from the ozone layer than people did 75 years ago. So now we're going to talk to somebody who can tell us what all that UV exposure actually means for our skin and also how to protect ourselves. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Caroline Robinson. I am a board-certified dermatologist in Chicago, and I am the founder of my solo practice here in the city called Tone Dermatology. Okay, so let's get into it. Can you explain to us, you're outside, you're being exposed to UV rays. What is happening on a cellular level to your skin at that point? So once those UVB rays reach our skin, they can pass into the deeper layers. We have the epidermis, which is our outer layer, and we have the dermis, which is right below that. The UVB rays travel through the epidermis and into the cell and can actually cause these little breaks in our DNA strands. Um, this is important because our skin cell repair mechanisms are constantly working to repair DNA damage. And when more and more DNA damage occurs, it's really hard for the 
skin's repair system to keep up with that. That means that those cells over time can become abnormal and eventually they could become cancerous. How quickly can damage happen? Are we talking about you're out for a minute and damage has started already? Is it 10 minutes? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, the damage can be pretty immediate, but we also have at the same time our repair systems working simultaneously. And the uh, efficiency, uh, you know, how well our repair systems work really depends on our age and it depends on family history. It It depends on a lot of different factors. Um, we also know that UVA rays and UVB rays affect our skin differently. The UVB rays are one of the main rays that can cause the DNA damage, but UVA rays travel deeper and they go into the dermis and they can cause damage to our collagen and a lot of the, the structural things that hold our skin um, together. You mentioned UVA and UVB rays. Can you explain to us what the difference is between the two? The best way to remember the difference between UVA rays and UVB rays is by thinking about the um, the letter, actually. So UVA rays are primarily responsible for the signs of and the changes of aging skin, which are fine lines, wrinkles, sunspots, But UVB rays are primarily responsible for burns, the skin cancers and um, sunburns that we typically associate with that type of radiation. So I went down a rabbit hole this weekend of looking at different moles and skin cancer. And I have a couple moles on me that I I just make sure that I watch every once in a while. I also, my husband has a a very close friend who unfortunately died of melanoma a couple of years ago. So it's definitely something that's like fresh on my mind. How does sun damage turn into skin cancer? Cumulative DNA damage causes cells to become abnormal. And abnormal cells that are not removed by our natural defenses have the potential to grow and divide and develop more abnormal cells. So we want we want to avoid that because um, once it reaches the stage of a group of cells, it's very difficult for our body to take care of that. Right. And obviously, one of the best protections against skin cancer is sunscreen. And we know that we're supposed to have at least an SPF of 30, or hopefully we know that. And the thing is, we're only getting that SPF of 30 if we apply the amount that the FDA uses for testing that they use to get to that number. And that is so much sunscreen. It's about half a teaspoon. It comes down to, I think it's two milligrams per square centimeter of skin. So it's about half a teaspoon for your face and neck which I once decided to do do a little test and I applied that much. And the sunscreen, I was trying to rub it in after a while, it just wouldn't rub in anymore and was just dripping off my face. So I'm pretty confident on a daily basis, I am not getting that full protection. Oh, yes. (laughs) And that's one of the main reasons why a higher SPF could be beneficial is if you are not applying, which most of us aren't, applying sunscreen in the liberal amount that it was studied with. (laughs) And of course, there's the two types of sunscreens. There's mineral, which is sometimes also called physical sunscreen, and chemical sunscreen. And chemical is 
kind of unfortunately named because no one really loves that C word. It can be a little scary. Both mineral and chemical sunscreens are created in a lab. And I think that um, a lot of people forget that that this is all, uh, you know, chemistry. (laughs) Now, the rule of reflection versus absorption when it comes to physical versus chemical sunscreens is not a hard and fast rule. There are definitely instances of physical sunscreens actually absorbing more UV rays than even their chemical counterparts. But it is a general rule that helps us distinguish the two categories of sunscreen. Now, absorbing and reflecting are not bad things. They're just different approaches to protecting us against UV rays. And that means that making the choice between a physical and a chemical sunscreen really becomes personal and about many more factors than how they work. And I think everyone got, you know, extra nervous about that that chemical word last year when the FDA announced that it was going to be reevaluating the safety of all of the sunscreen ingredients. And everyone was a little bit like, wait, are you saying they're not safe? And it's sort of been this open-ended question now for about a year and a half. Um, so can you just speak to us for a minute about what what you tell your patients about what chemical sunscreens could potentially be doing that's negative and how they can protect themselves? We kind of don't know what we don't know. One of the main concerns is a specific study that showed that there were detectable levels of some of the chemical sunscreen ingredients in the blood, you know, after a certain amount of days of application. And it sounds um, very bad, right? And, but the thing is, a lot of assumptions have to be made. So number one, um, the assumption is that you apply it in the same way that the people in the studies did it, which was over almost your entire body for four days in a row. I can't get any patients to do that. <laughs> you know, I we're just trying to get them to apply it to exposed skin at the very least. So you, you would have to make the assumption that you're replicating that scenario. For my patients who are very, very concerned about this, I often have a conversation because the tendency is to stop sunscreen altogether. And that's the worst thing. (laughs) You know, we don't want that. We actually would love you to continue to protect your skin and to avoid any concern in those patients who are highly um, sensitive to that information. I do tend to recommend mineral sunscreens. I remember as a kid sunscreen felt like it was either one of two things. One, I remember like super runny sunscreen, like it seemed so watery to me, but then also you had the super white, pasty, chalky, greasy kind. Why was sunscreen initially so greasy and unpleasant to use and how has it evolved since then? The sunscreen of back in the day, (laughs) especially the chalky ones, were really large molecules, large um, pieces of, of zinc in them. And that created a lot of the chalkiness and a lot of the heaviness and greasiness that we associate with sunscreens of the past. The biggest innovation has been in the size of the particles. They become smaller, different creative shapes to try to bounce the light off a little bit better. And then even just 
the blend of chemical and physical sunscreens is not something that we saw a lot of in the past, but that has become more commonplace. Blending a mineral sunscreen with a little bit of a chemical sunscreen to try to get it to be more cosmetically elegant. So you talked a little bit about the innovations that have brought us here with sunscreens and how they've drastically improved. But when you look in the next five to 10 years, what are some of the changes that scientists are making right now to help improve sunscreen for the future? I think the biggest change is the actual sunscreens, the actual filters, the actual ingredients that are available to us to protect us against both UVA and UVB. Also, antioxidants are an important, important part in our natural defenses against the effects of UV radiation. So adding an antioxidant to our sunscreens or layering with an antioxidant is uh, something that I think is going to become more common in the sunscreens that are available on the market within the next decade. Are there antioxidants that you recommend most? Like, would you say someone put on a vitamin C serum before doing their sunscreen? Like, what's your recommendation? That is it. That is actually my number one recommendation. And that does a couple of things. It's going to provide an extra level of protection against UV radiation, actually. But it's also going to help with repair because of its antioxidant function. And especially in my patients of color, it also helps with hyperpigmentation. And when antioxidants repair the skin, are they repairing that DNA damage that's caused by the UV rays? Oh, such a great question. (laughs) This is where we can nerd out a little bit. UVA radiation causes something called oxidative stress. And what that is, is the oxygen molecules in our skin can actually get really excited. They can get really unstable and irritable, if you will and um, create something called a free radical when they're exposed to UV radiation. And the antioxidants' important role is to absorb that instability, to absorb those free radicals. Free radicals sounds, they're liberated, they're doing their thing. Like, what's so what's so bad about them? <laughs> yeah, they're just free. <laughs> Yeah, they themselves can actually cause the breakdown of collagen and elastin. They are not good people. (laughs) And they just create a very stressful state for the cells. And that means that our um, repair system has to work harder. Everything in the cell has to work harder in the presence of a free radical. So it's really something we want to try to avoid and try to neutralize, if you will, as quickly as possible. What, Dr. Robinson, is the antioxidant serum that you use every morning under your sunscreen? I use Revision C-plus Correcting Complex under my sunscreen every morning. And the reason that I use that particular one is because it has vitamin C, but it also has other antioxidants in it. And I, I personally think that a blend of antioxidants is better than one on its own. All right, Dr. Robinson, we have a couple Allure listener questions for you, so let's get into them. Perfect. Hi, I'm Melissa from Frenchtown, New Jersey, and I was just wondering how effective makeup with built-in SPF really is. Am I still being protected? Thanks. 
I do not recommend relying on your makeup for your SPF protection because for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one, the makeups with SPF are not typically held to the same rigorous standards that a sunscreen lotion or a sunscreen moisturizer would be. And then the other more obvious reason is that we typically are not applying our makeup in all of the areas that we need sun protection, like the back of our ears or the back of our neck. I have not seen, have you guys ever done that? I have not seen that ever happen. (laughs) But wait, Dr. Robinson, are we supposed to be putting sunscreen on the backs of our necks every day? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Back of your neck, back of your ears, tops of your ears, backs of your hands is the song that I sing to <laughs> to my patients. Hi, my name is Emily and I'm from Connecticut. Um, I had a question about sunscreen. Every chemical formula I try makes me break out and every mineral formula I try leaves a white cast and is just totally unusable. So what should I do? Yeah, this is the conundrum. So I think the most important thing that you could do at this point would be to find a physical sunscreen specifically that um, it has a more elegant cosmetic finish that maybe is at a slightly higher price point. Unfortunately, Um, those are the ones that do tend to put in the effort to blend better. Um, There's a bunch that are blendable that I like. I tend to recommend like, for example, the Revision True Physical Sunscreen, the Skin Better, Sun Better Science, but even there are some great drugstore ones like by Aveeno and Neutrogena and CeraVe that do blend in and that are physical. Hey, I'm Brian from Manhattan. I usually wear a tanning lotion of SPF 4 all over my body. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that that's probably not the best thing to use. I have a dark complexion and I've always wondered, do people with dark complexion need to wear sunscreen? I have a Dominican background, so I know we don't burn or get skin cancer as much as people with fair skin. What do you suggest? I really appreciate this question because we spent a lot of time talking about the different types of UV radiation. And I think that a lot of times we associate the harmful effects from the sun with um, just UVB, uh, which is what is going to give us burns and, you know, redness. And it is the main driver of skin cancers. But UVA is a sneaky one, you know, it get it travels really deep. It's going to affect our collagen, our elastin, really the signs of aging. It's going to drive that free radical production. So those are things that we may not necessarily see on our skin immediately, but they're changes that over time do affect all of us. So for that reason, I think that even if you don't get a sunburn or you don't think that, you know, you're particularly at risk of skin cancer, UV radiation damages all skin and it's important to protect it for that reason. So as our takeaway, what is your recommendation for us? So we should be really slathering ourselves every single day, backs of our necks, everything with sunscreen, our children as well. What What should we be doing? The most missed places I would say are the eyelids, under eye and above the eye, um, the lips, 
the backs of the ears, the back of the neck, and the hands. But as a general recommendation, I think it's important that everyone wear sunscreen, no matter how old you are, no matter what skin type you have, and what, no matter what um, skin tone you have. And the sunscreen should be worn year-round, every season, every, um, every day, just really as part of your routine. SPF 30 is the minimum recommendation, but as we talked about, sometimes there are certain scenarios, especially if you are not wearing enough sunscreen, where an SPF 50 may be better for you. So good. I feel like I learned so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Robinson, for being with us. Thanks, Dr. Robinson. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Michelle, what have we learned? We've learned that we should be putting sunscreen on the back of our necks. Oh, yes. And we learned all about what exactly UVA and UVB rays are doing to our skin. And we learned that science is pretty incredible, and it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Beauty science can be deeply connected to environmental science, and both can affect how we live and how we look every day. But Jenny, there's one last thing we have to do before we go. We've spent this whole episode talking all about sunscreen, but there's one thing we haven't said yet. Right, of course. What sunscreen we use. Okay, so you go first. Jenny, what's your favorite sunscreen? I have so many. I have a wardrobe of sunscreens. I actually brought some of them out. Um, the Fenty Skin Sunscreen is one that I've been using a lot lately. It has a- oh, I haven't tried that one still. Oh, I want to try it. It has a slight pink tint, um, and it's looked beautiful on every skin tone. Um, in the office who has tried it. There's also a, a brand called Isden um, that makes an SPF 50 that I love. It's very light, um, nice for every day. It's good under makeup. And then La Roche-Posay is probably my my third choice. They have um, a lot of different sunscreens, but there's one called Anthelios Clear Skin, um, which is great. If you tend to break out from sunscreen, it, it really won't break you out and it dries very matte. Mm. Okay, so mine are, uh, I just started using this one, and it's obviously been recommended by so many dermatologists and other people. Um, on a daily basis, I've been using the Elta MD UV Daily Sunscreen. It's the SPF 40. Um, it's a little bit tinted, so it actually, when you pump it out, looks like foundation, but it's much lighter than that. Um, I can actually reapply that throughout the day, and it doesn't start to feel too heavy. I also, when I'm on vacation, love the Super Goop Glow Stick. I say when I'm on vacation because it is not a daily sunscreen. It definitely leaves you looking very, very dewy. So if you're out on the beach or something, it looks great. In an office type of setting, I think it's maybe a little bit too dewy, but I love it when I'm out and about. Um, on a daily basis also, I will switch off and use the Olay Regenerous with SPF. It's like the tall red one in the pump. And then also... Um, one of my favorites is by Revive. It's the Perfective Even Skin Tone Cream. Um, that one I think has an SPF 25, but I love, it just smells so nice and it's like really fresh. So I'll usually do some sort of a layering, like I might use the Revive um, underneath the Elta MD throughout the day. So you're amping up that ultimate SPF number. Well, thank you all for joining us on this first episode of Science of Beauty from Allure. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information and episode references in the show notes. Follow Allure on Instagram at Allure, and I'm at Hey Michelle Lee, and Jenny is at J by E. 
B-A-I-L-L-Y. On our audio team, our lead producer is Carla Green. Executive producer is Shara Morris. Associate producer is Kate Mishkin. And sound engineer is Scott Somerville. On the Allure team, the editorial leads are Soyini Driscoll and Diana Mazone. Lead researcher is Julie Risabudo, And project manager is Monica Perry. The theme music is by Asha Ivanovich. Special thanks to Julie Shen and Neon Hum. Join us again next week when we're going to be talking all about something we hear a lot of questions about at Allure, hyperpigmentation. Okay, I need that one so much. All right, everyone, see you then. Bye.